From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, August 12th. Moab had quite a storm last night, flooding on Main Street, the creeks running fast and muddy. In the aftermath of summer weather events like this, some people think about what's to come. An enemy in Moab lying in wait. Locals know it well. It's lived here a long time, even longer in other parts of the world. Like a lot of shapeshifters, it's known by many names. Bindi, Bullhead, Devil's Eyelashes, Buragokuru, Tribulus, Terrestris. The names sound intense, as though they carry a hint of disdain in every language. So this is the bike area where you know the kids come back and forth across here, people go across the bridge. Randall Lewis. We're on a pedestrian bridge in central Moab, looking over the bike path that snakes along the edge of Mill Creek. On this day, it's still early in the season. It's been months since the enemy's last appearance in this area. But Lewis knows it's still out there, waiting. He remembers last year's battles like it was yesterday. Yeah, so this is the area that took about 10-plus hours in order to in order to clear it. Wow. Last year, if you would have walked through here, uh-huh. you were guaranteed to get stabbed. It is said that into every generation, a slayer is born. Lewis may look like a typical dad, ball cap, long shorts, but looks can be deceiving. So right now, I'm actually excited to go pull them because I haven't had to pull any for, what, eight, nine, eight months? And so I'm sort of recharged. But definitely towards the end of the season, I was I was pretty uh, go-headed out. So You're like a river guide returning to the season. <laughs> exactly. It's the same thing, but... Uh Pulling goat heads, I guess, (laughs) which is crazy. With a trained eye, he spots a small woody seed, a little dried out from last season, but still capable of a fight. Long, sharp spines decorate the edges of this geometric star, creating nature's perfect thumbtack. You can't really pick it up without getting pricked. Each of its spines could easily penetrate bare skin. And you can see it looks like a goat head. See right there? Moab's enemy, the noxious weed, known locally as the goat head. (laughs) Maybe nothing can unite a community quite like a common rage against this hardy and often infuriating invasive plant. It grows in areas where few others can survive. And it's prolific. One plant can produce thousands of these goat-like burrs per season. These seeds survive for years, just waiting for an unsuspecting shoe or tire to carry them and spread them around, likely ruining that person's day in the process. This is nature at war with anything that is able to carry these little puncture sticker weeds. Because even though there's one of them stabbed in your shoe, there's three little prongs that are sticking out. And so when you try to then pull it off, of your shoe, you're going to get stabbed with your finger. Lewis, the goat head slayer, or warrior, as he prefers, in his home office, not far from the goat head battleground along the bike path. The man is a data scientist by trade. For a living, he builds virtual systems to guide decision making. So it's not altogether surprising that Moab's goat heads are a solvable problem to him. They might have seeds. Their seeds last a long time. They last uh, perhaps up to seven to ten years, maybe even longer. So they're some of the most durable seeds that exist in the plant kingdom. But? Because they're annuals, if you get them and they don't produce seeds, they're gone. So it is something that you can make progress on. Pull the plant before it seeds, get rid of it. Sounds simple enough. 
but the Goathead is a formidable opponent. First-hand experience in his own yard taught Lewis just how prolific these weeds could be and just how difficult at times to pull. And last year, there was this one spot keeping him up at night, a giant gravel patch covered in goat heads near the local schools. And so I looked at that patch. That patch is, I think, technically city property. It is kind of in this space where if I didn't do anything about it, it would, nobody was going to do anything about it, but it was right past where, where many kids would bike to high school and middle school. And there was, and so I've just seen so many bikes go past there that to, to let millions of goat heads breed on the edge of such a highly trafficked spot, it just, I couldn't let it, I couldn't let it go. After four hours of hand pulling, he got about a quarter of the way through the massive patch. He quickly enlisted his wife and three kids. A few more hours with them, and steadily, finally, victory was theirs. And Lewis kept going. By mid-season, he was a full-on slayer, traveling to other known goat head patches and community spaces. He even created a prototype of a machine to suck up their seeds. He realized he had a favorite garden knife to pull up their roots. And he met people doing the exact same things. My name's Liz Ballinger. I am an ecologist with the National Park Service. I manage the vegetation program there, but really my passion for managing goat heads is, I would say, at a much more personal level. <laughs> so I'm not speaking for Park Service here. If there's one thing I've learned when it comes to locals and goat heads, it gets personal. Once that first sticker pops your bike tube, cuts your hand, hurts your dog's paw, that's usually all the experience you need to take up arms against it. Ballinger says at times, like Lewis, she's been known to, quote, go rogue. I will admit and confess to doing some ninja uh, goat head pulling activities around uh, the neighborhoods and, and maybe crossing slightly into people's private properties, especially if it seemed like the goat heads are going to be rolling down into the street. A little light trespassing in the name of collective good. And Ballinger has taken it a step further. Last year, she printed off informational flyers with full-color mugshots of Puncture Vine, alias Goathead, alias Tribulus Terrestris. The bold red lettering across the page warned, noxious, invasive plant. The Goathead shapeshifts, so she wanted people to know what they look like throughout their season and how to get rid of them. It seems like you turn your back on them and you turn around and like the next day they've grown several inches. <laughs> and that's kind of how these guys seem to operate. And they can go from seedling stage to flowering and then producing fruit within a couple weeks easily. According to experts, they need warm soils and a certain amount of moisture to really take off. Last year's heat, coupled with giant monsoons and townwide flooding, all of this created just the right conditions for what Ballinger calls goathead mageddon. It was because of the population explosion that happened due to this really great monsoon season that we had. And the monsoon, I mean, we, we needed that moisture. We were all like super excited and doing our rain dances and celebrating out there. But of course, so were the goat heads, right? It remains to be seen what will materialize this year in terms of the monsoon. Um, but especially because there was a lot of uh, goat heads that went to seed last year, we've got an incredible seed bank. And so they're all just kind of waiting now and they're, they're gonna come up and, and party with us again. <laughs> Anticipating this party, a couple months back, Lewis created a Facebook group called Moab Goathead's Gone. 
It's ideal for anyone interested in tackling goat heads in community spaces. Group members can pool their knowledge and share updates about known trouble spots. Anonymous Park, the intersection of 400 North and 500 West. I think with the group, well, we'll see sort of what comes of it. I really just wanted to give, a, give people a place where, where they could post. They could say, hey, I'm gonna go pull goat heads. Do you wanna come pull goat heads with me? Try to, try to help it feel less lonely. Pretty soon after the group went live, one newcomer posted in all caps, I have found my people. You know, it annoys the bejesus out of my my mother and my partner and my friends when we're going somewhere and I'm like pulling weeds. I'm behind everyone in the group because I'm pulling weeds on the corners. Kaya Marienfeld, a member of Moab Goat Heads Gone. We're speaking downtown at the food truck park, one of the known goat head hotspot areas. There's a lot of foot traffic here, which means plenty of opportunity for the burrs to hitch a ride on an unsuspecting athletic shoe successfully spreading themselves across the county and who knows where else. Goat heads hug the ground as they grow. And last year, Marion Feld and a friend tackled a patch of them here that looked like a mat, or as she describes, carpet. It was a literal carpet of goat heads. And so we figured out that the, the easiest way to do it was to sort of just pull up the ends and just start rolling it up as if it was a carpet. And then eventually you get to where the root is in the ground and you take, I like to use the claw end of a hammer, like a framing hammer, it works really, really well. You just like take that, you pull it up out of the ground and then keep rolling and they were like all attached together. It was crazy. (laughs) This task of pulling goat heads in quasi community spaces has been done for years, informally among friends and family. It's still that way, but Moab Goat Heads Gone promises a little more coordination. Neighbors can now post pictures of where the plants are growing and discuss attack strategies. One photo from late July shows goat heads popping up along the fence between A1 Storage and the Best Western. The post says, okay people, it's time. Commenters make plans to address the spot. One person simply writes in with the hashtag, have hulaho, will travel. At this point, you might be wondering, don't we have a weed department? It is one of the weeds that I get the most calls about and also impacts my daily life. I hate getting them in my feet as well. Izzy Weimholt, Grand County's Noxious Weeds Supervisor. Her department is tasked with handling a lot of invasive plants. Their top priorities right now are giant reed and African rue. Goat heads aren't considered as threatening to native ecosystems as those other two. But Weimholt has put some extra resources toward controlling them. Goat heads, or puncture vine, are a class 3 weed, which means that our priority is containment. Um, But as a department, we have just prioritized it higher based on community need. Um, So while we don't go to the law to enforce removal, we do put in a lot of resources um, for removal and also, obviously, containment. Grand County's weed department is made up of just two people, Weimholt and a coworker. They have to worry about invasive species everywhere, from downtown Moab to the middle of nowhere in the book cliffs. There's just so many acres to cover. So she's grateful for the grassroots community effort springing up around this particular weed. 
And last year, this type of enthusiasm even gave her an idea. I kept getting calls about, what can I do? I have so many bags full of goat heads. And I was like, oh, well, maybe you can just bring them up here. Up here, meaning her office near the local recycling center, she started weighing the trash bags full of goat heads, keeping a tally of how much each person brought in. It quickly became a community-wide competition. We distributed prizes based on who brought in the most. Many local businesses actually chipped in. Um, we had gift cards from Wild Escapes and bike tune-ups from Moab Cyclery, some gift cards to Moonflower. It was kind of a community effort yeah, that everybody could rally around. She's bringing the Goat Head Gala back this year over four separate Sundays in August and September. There will be prizes and a potluck. It's reminiscent of another goat head-related event in our region. The bicycle community in Boise, Idaho, created an annual goat head festival centered around harvesting parties. It's notable when people come together for a chance to vanquish a common enemy. You know, like, the, the tendencies of humanity almost rest on it a little bit. It's either, like, it's a really good sign that we're all, you know, protecting our area together and doing little bitty things that make a lot of difference for the collective good, or it's like tragedy of the commons. I think it's one of those two things. Marion Feld again. There are certain problems in the world that can feel overwhelming. The crushing weight of climate change, systemic inequality, even state and local policies that don't sit right. She says trashing goat heads can just make you feel better. I try not to get really upset about things I can't do anything about. And I think this is a very good example of something that, you know, I and we can. I certainly feel a degree of love and joy and inspiration about the areas where I know we've made a difference. Back at data scientist slash goat head slayer Lewis's office, he's worked out an equation. Goat heads, he reminds me, are an annual, and their seeds are viable for roughly three to seven years. So this year, if we get 90% of them, maybe next year, maybe there'll only be 10% as many, and then we can get, you know, another 90% of those. And if there's only dozens of them instead of hundreds or thousands of them, then it just becomes a much more manageable effort. And then we get to enjoy the bike trails and we get to enjoy the community and our dogs and cats don't get stabbed as much. And it'll just be a, I don't know, it'll be Moab bliss. But to experience such bliss, the battle must continue. And now seems like the time for action to get the plants before they go to seed. Ballinger says just one goat head pulled early can prevent hundreds of them from spreading later. I do feel the sense of urgency trying to make sure that you get to all your hot spots. We call them our hot spot areas before they start dropping the seeds because then once they drop the seed, then what are you going to do? Uh, walk around within your crocs to pick up all the seeds? I don't know, you know, it, it gets bad. So you have to just try to stay on top of it and there is this window of time where if we can like pull together. Not to <laughs> have that pun, but yeah, if we can all pull together, um, we can make a really big difference. There's a story Ballinger likes, a kind of legend several people have repeated to me while discussing goat heads in the Moab Valley. The former publisher of the Times Independent, before he passed away, 
wrote a column. In one of them, he laments that goat heads are one of the reasons he never went barefoot growing up here as a kid. As he tells it, this tiny enemy first came to Moab on the rubber tires of carnival trucks, the ones that would set up their entertainment on a vacant corner off Center Street. And then, you know, a few weeks later, people started seeing the pretty little flowers blooming, the little yellow flowers. And by the time they realized what they were, it was too late. <laughs> As an ecologist, Ballinger knows that completely eradicating goat heads for the Moab Valley is likely not possible. But she thinks control is a very achievable goal. And control is something that can only happen if people take collective action, adopting common areas and checking on them throughout the goathead season, regularly looking at your shoes and tires to make sure you're not accidentally giving them a ride and helping them spread around, and perhaps even going a little rogue. She tells me about some friends of hers who tackled a bad goat head infestation off Murphy Lane. And they took old uh, foam sleeping pads that they had and made these like special shoes. They strapped them to their shoes and then walked around to pick up all the goat head seeds. Special shoes, prototypes of seed rollers, locals chatting up their favorite method of goat head pulling. No one really offered me anything positive to say about this weed, but they had positive solutions. Perhaps that's what goat heads are good for inspiring people to get creative and band together. Dare I say, they build community. They're miserable for everybody, right? Regardless of our political stripes or opinions on various local issues, it's like, I think we all agree that we need to help get rid of goat heads. And a brief addendum. During our interview, Liz Ballinger asked me a question. Mm-hmm. Oh, did you see the ad in the advertiser for the Goathead Doctor? Who the heck is this? I just noticed it in the last week's what? advertiser. I hadn't heard of the Goathead Doctor, but I quickly tracked him down. I found his number through his local ad. It reads, get control of your Goathead infestation ASAP. Please call if you're serious. These stickers are no laughing matter. Ask for Earl. The reason why I started this business in the first place is because I hate the dang things. The goat head doctor himself, Earl Covey, like a doctor who has to understand various ailments and diseases. You can't conquer this type of noxious weed if you don't know how it works. He's studied the goat heads through landscape work for about a decade, and Earl has developed his own way of treating them, creating a spray that he says is so non-toxic you could drink it tastes terrible, but it's not going to kill you. He's not above using weevils for particularly large infestations, or even vacuuming the ground for seeds. Just like Moab's volunteer warriors, he says when it comes to goat heads, it's personal. They cause pain. They cause pain to you, your children, your pets. They will literally block you from going out and, and doing barbecue. Because if you get caught by somebody's girlfriend or somebody's wife tracking those suckers in on the carpet, there's going to be some yelling happening when somebody steps on one. Earl is looking into grants so he can offer his services for free, but that might take time. So for now, he's for hire. The goat head doctor would like the dang things to get under control and advises that if listeners don't want to pay for his services, get your butt out there and start helping it out.
And now KZMU's Justin Higginbottom has the weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. The parents of Gabby Petito plan to sue the Moab Police Department over the death of their daughter. Our city's police pulled over Petito and her fiancé, Brian Laundrie, after someone saw Laundrie hitting Petito. The officers didn't charge Laundrie. Petito's family thinks they should have done more. Sophia Fisher from the Times Independent has more from their coverage. So the parents of Gabby Petito, a young woman who uh, passed through the Moab area last August uh, before her uh, body was found a few weeks later in a Wyoming forest, her parents served the Moab Police Department with a $50 million notice of claim on Monday, alleging that officers um, in an encounter with Petito and her boyfriend Brian Laundrie last year either misinterpreted or, or didn't quite understand Utah domestic violence laws, which allegedly partially led to a Tito's wrongful death a few weeks later. And Moab Police Department had stopped them after 911 caller witnessed Brian Laundrie striking Petito in town? Correct. Uh, striking Petito in town, and I think she had been kind of trying to climb over him to get back into the van, and then um, officers pulled them over just outside the entrance to Arches National Park and had a roughly, I think, 90-minute interaction. Um, they were separated for the night, but yeah, a few weeks later, Petito was unfortunately found found slain. So there, there was an outside investigation into the police department's handling of that and I, I believe they found that the police department did make mistakes, although I don't think they can conclude whether or not those mistakes led to Petito's death or if there's anything the police department could have done that would have saved Gabby and then prevented that tragedy. Right. I think the exact phrase used in that investigation was um, like unintentional mistakes, unintentional errors. But, you know, Petito's parents are, are definitely going a step further and pursuing um, a wrongful death lawsuit, essentially arguing that those mistakes, you know, intentional or unintentional led to her, her death. And they're asking for $50 million, which seems like a lot for our police department. Yes, and the defendants they've listed include former police chief Brett Edge, um, as well as assistant chief Braden Palmer, and then the two officers who did interact um, with Petito and Laundry. Is there anything else you'd like to mention on this story? There's a lot of good background information about the encounter in um, my editor's, Doug McWhorter's story this week, so I definitely encourage folks to check it out. Excellent, great. And what else do you have on the front page here? The other big political story this week has to do with out-of-town interests seeking information on Grand County Attorney Christina Sloan, as well as the election that she's facing in November. It's about several um, kind of individual and potentially unrelated incidents over the last couple months that nevertheless point to some sort of trend in, in you know, out-of-town interest and sometimes anonymous interest um, in Sloan. So the first incident that I discuss is a Salt Lake City-based private investigator who, his name is Greg Rogers, and he's told me he's investigating Sloan. Um, I heard about him through a former employee of the Grand County Attorney's Office, Laurel Hagan, who told me that she'd been contacted by Rogers in May um, by the phone asking her to chat with him due to, you know, suspected or potential improprieties um, with Sloan. In that call, Hagen said that his client, he said that his clients were um, out-of-state developers. And I did talk to Rogers, um, you know, he couldn't give me information about his clients. He did confirm he was investigating Sloan. He said it had nothing to do with the upcoming election. And he did also confirm that he was involved with a recent investigation by KUTV2 News, uh, drawing connections between a real estate purchase that Sloan had from a Moab resident, James Hoffman, who her office was prosecuting um, at the time this year, actually. So Rogers was involved, actually, in that investigation as well. And, and that real estate sale 
the the property that Sloan bought from Hoffman, who her office was prosecuting, reportedly that that might have been below market value. Um, not necessarily market value, because I think that's like a little more um, subjective. But the listing price. The listing price. Yeah. Okay. So it was listed. I think the price had actually already dropped, but it was listed at seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, and she bought it at seven ten thousand dollars. So it's forty thousand dollars below. And actually, uh, you bring that up. I I have a related story, doing a bit of a follow up to that KUTV story in the paper as well. And I actually spoke with the realtor, Rachel Moody of Berkshire Hathaway, who represented Hoffman, um, asking her about that, you know, um, paying under listing price. And she said that there was nothing out of the ordinary in the price that uh, Sloan did pay for the property, which was listed as commercial property. Great. Is there anything else you'd like to mention about this story? Yeah, there's a lot going on. I definitely encourage folks to read both stories, both the one about kind of the out-of-town interests and then the follow-up to the um that real estate kind of deal story. Um, But interestingly, there was also a very bulky public records request given to Grand County Clerk Auditor Gabe Wojtek in March, requesting a lot of information about both Sloan and Strategic Development Director Chris Baird. Some of the requests, many of the requests going back to like 2018 or 2019. Um, So that's kind of another piece of information in this story. And actually, I went down a bit of an internet rabbit hole because the man who made that public records request, Ezra Goldman, first of all, did not respond to my phone call. um, But he, according to his email signature, was working for this Las Vegas-based LLC called Disclosure Associates. And doing some digging on them, they're they're connected to uh, this New Mexico company called Law for Small Business that advertises on its website that one of its services is creating anonymous LLCs that are essentially untrackable, except like if you, you know, bring litigation against them. So seemingly secretive and or out-of-town interests, again, expressing interest in the attorney race. I mean, Rogers told me that his aim was, you know, looking for folks using political office for personal enrichment. So he was talking about, like, you know, neglecting your duty as a, as a public servant. I know that's what Rogers said he was interested in, and that's what his clients hired him to look into. Um, as for, you know, Ezra Goldman and Disclosure Associates, they might be looking for evidence of misuse of office as well. But it's ultimately, it's really unclear, which is kind of, um, you know, one of the most interesting things about this story is just like the lack of information, quite frankly, we just know that somebody's looking into Sloan and the race, but we don't know, in some cases, we don't know with what angle or what aim. Well, it's good work, at least making it transparent, even though we don't maybe know what it means yet. Mm-hmm. So what's the next uh, story you want to chat about? Yeah, in, um, in lighter news, we have a really interesting story about an 800-year-old uh, cooking vessel that's being rehabilitated by the Moab Museum. And cooking vessel, what, what does this look like for people that don't have a newspaper in front of them? Yeah, this is like a, a I'm, I hope I'm not doing disservice um, to this incredible you know, it looks amazing. pottery. Yeah, it's this large jug, and it was actually found by George Rathbun in 1960 off of Potash Road. And wow. I think it's been just like stuffed away in a box in the museum ever since. It's it's pretty incredible looking and, and Moab Museum curator and collections manager Tara Barish is in the process of kind of quote unquote breathing life back into the jug and also reaching out to local indigenous tribes too to better understand, you know, what its purpose and meaning might be and whether it's an appropriate thing to be displayed and if so, how. Right. That's that's great that people will I guess be able to at least see it now. And and it was found in originally in the night rediscovered in the nineteen sixties, you said. Since then I think probably the policy in showing these objects to the public has has changed. And so the Moab Museum's probably reaching out more to Native American groups than maybe, you know, curators would in the past. 
Absolutely. No, I think that's a big part of the story is the way the museum is, is now um, interacting with artifacts and particularly, you know, indigenous related objects and things like that to ensure that um, they're being respectful, you know, and, and honoring the meaning of these um, often very important things. So several different really interesting angles in the story. So I definitely encourage readers to check it out. Excellent. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. The Moab community is below average when it comes to recycling, at least compared to a national average. Now a local nonprofit is campaigning for the creation of a recycling specialist position. Allison Hartford of the Moab Sun News has more about the future of sustainability in the Moab Valley. Moab Solutions is this local nonprofit that does a lot of things. They do um, like homelessness outreach, um, and they also do a lot of recycling. And so the nonprofit is run by Sarah Milnikoff, um, who recently approached uh, Moab City, Grand County, and the Kenyaland Solid Waste Authority. And she's trying to get them to create a new recycling specialist role. So so we don't have a recycling specialist on staff right now. Right. And so um, this is something that I looked into about a year ago. The city of Moab, you know, like everyone here is very environmentally friendly and constantly thinking about it. But there are actually very few policies in place that support sustainability. And our last sustainability director was working on a sustainability plan for the city, but it never got finalized. And so we're kind of in this um, like gray area where people do care about these issues, but there aren't any real policy supporting them. And so Rachel found that Grand County residents have a few options to participate in recycling. There's a single stream curbside collection service, which a lot of people have. Um, So you can put your recyclables in a single container and then um, the Waste Authority will come and pick it up. And there's also a community recycle center, which is open for residents to drop off sorted materials. But even with these options, Grand County is well below the national average in diverting waste from landfills. So in last year, waste diversion analysis, the county's diversion rate was about 11%. So that means that 11% of everything being thrown away was being diverted from the landfill through programs like the recycling center or mulching um, and also salvaging scrap material. But the national waste diversion rate is above 30%. So we're pretty below that. Yeah. So Sarah's basically asking everyone to consider this role. Ideally, she said it would be a cost-sharing agreement between um, the city and the county and Canyonland Solid Waste Authority to support a full-time recycling specialist position. This specialist person would um, focus on collecting recyclables from public locations like city parks, um, and they would deliver them to the community recycle center. And also this person would be able to do public outreach. And so Moab Solutions has been conducting this work in the community for a really long time. Sarah constantly goes to like Mill Creek and Lions Park, and she sorts recyclables herself. And so she's just kind of saying that the city and the county would benefit from somebody who can even tell like visitors that, you know, when you go to Lions Park, there's still an option to recycle. Yeah, Sarah's done a lot of great work there. Yeah, someone should hire her to do that. <laughs> <laughs> someone should give her money to do it. Saying. Excellent. Anything else you want to mention on that? Yeah, so um, both the city and the county are still kind of like mulling this over. Um, the Grand County Strategic Development Director said he's met briefly with um, Sarah about the proposal, but it's too early to say whether the county will participate or not. And um, 
Lisa Church, who's the city of Moab communications manager, said that the city has invested in the creation of a a recycling coordinator position that's included in the city's contract with the Canyonland Solid Waste Authority. But she also was saying that recycling is included in in the city's draft sustainability plan. Um, And so they're working on kind of like expanding what the city can do with recycling. And you mentioned that the city's still working on that sustainability plan. Right. Yeah. So there's nothing, there's not an official sustainability plan yet. Well, great. That's something to look forward to. What else you got? On August 13th, which is this Saturday, the Canyon Country Discovery Center in Monticello is hosting a dark sky discovery night. Great. What what does that include? So the event will explore um, the August supermoon, um, the Perseid meteor shower, and Saturn, which at this point in the year is at its closest point to the Earth. And so the way that this event works, it begins at 8.30, um, and it'll kick off with a talk by someone from Canyonlands National Park, and they'll be talking about the importance of water in space, um, which is the one thing that will tie together the meteors and the moon and Saturn. And so I talked to Ben Molestein, who is um, the education coordinator at the Discovery Center. And he said that, you know, we think of water as something that is unique to Earth and unique to the life that we have here, but it really ties together our whole galaxy. And so the rings of Saturn are built with icy objects. Frozen water has been found in the shadowed craters of the moon's poles, and a lot of the Perseid meteors are also made of icy objects. Oh, that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. And the Perseid, this this meteor shower, does that only come around once in a while? Yeah, so it happens once a year. Um, it's one of the most popular meteor showers throughout the year. And so every August, Earth passes through this dense debris that was left behind by Comet Swift-Tuttle, and that debris creates the Perseids. Um, and so this comet orbits the sun every 133 years. The last time it passed by Earth was in 1992, and it left behind all this ice and rocks and dust. And so the shower this year won't be as spectacular because the full moon is happening at the same time, but viewers can still expect to see 10 to 20 meteors um, per hour. If someone's interested in this, where, where should they go? So it'll be uh, at the Canyon Country Discovery Center, which is in Monticello. But if you want to see the meteor shower, just go outside like around midnight. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, this is a great area to do it. And uh, what's what's your next story, Allie? So next weekend is the Helper Arts Festival. So Helper is about two hours north. Um, so this would be a mini road trip for anyone in Moab. But it's a three-day festival that includes live music, a gallery stroll, a car show, um, a children's art yard, an open mic, a beer garden, and of course, art and food vendors and that that road trip i think will be worth it uh helpers a super interesting place they've sort of rebranded themselves as an artist enclave lately haven't they yeah definitely so i talked to hannah patrick who organizes all the vendors and she said the festival totally filled up this year there's going to be 60 art vendors coming from all over the West. So most are from Utah um, and many from Helper, but there are also artists coming from New Mexico, Arizona, and Wyoming. And they have a range of mediums like photography, woodworking, painting, drawing, ceramics, jewelry, kind of anything that's handmade you can expect to see at the festival. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful little old uh, old mining town with a lot of, lot of interesting history. Yeah, I also talked to Kenny Driggs, um, who runs a production company in Los Angeles, but he also organizes the 
the musicians and the performances for this festival. And so the festival will host 20 musical acts across three different stages. And Kenny said that the approach this year is that every single one of the music acts is worth driving out to help her to see. So there are two outdoor stages, one on Main Street and one on Depot Street, and one indoor at the Rio Theater, which is recently renovated with new lighting and audio. Great. Are you going to check it out? Yeah, definitely. It sounds amazing. Excellent. Anything else you want to mention there? Yeah, so the open mics will occur on Friday and Saturday, um, and that's a time for people to bring their guitars and just jump on a mic. And then there's also a car show all day Saturday and a kid's tent open for the duration of the festival. Um, And then there's also a stop motion animation workshop for kids on Monday. Cool. So there will be a beer garden, but it's also nice to bring your family. Right. Allison Hartford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes at our website kzmu.org or wherever you listen to the KZMU News Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU Community Powered Radio.